I tend to always see disruption as an opportunity for change and innovation. And so that's what the association started doing. Um, we really, we tackled some really big things, right? We tackled culture, we tackled our conference, which had been with partner organizations for two decades. And so coming out of the pandemic, it was how do we make this look like our own? We tackled how do we better support our staff? Um, we tackled how do we function effectively in a remote environment? And so. I think like a lot of great executives, you look at the opportunity you have to make change in a positive way, and you just have to start doing it. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story, and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Tara Pucky, Executive Director of the Radio Television Digital News Association, or RTDNA. Tara, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, Tara, tell us about RTDNA. RTDNA is a individual membership organization. Our members are primarily news directors of broadcast and radio stations, local for the most part. We do have some network folks in there as well. And then digital, which for us at this point in time within the journalism industry, digital almost means everyone because everybody knows no matter what type of journalism you're producing, it's happening on the digital front. Our members are parts of the local news community, giving people the information they need so that their lives can be successful and they know what to do to keep themselves safe and to keep them fa- their families informed. So those are our members. Uh, they're incredible journalists. They lead really great teams of incredible journalists. And I think for us, the journalism industry has been rough over the last uh, yeah, decade yeah. or so plus. But I think the really great part about RTDNA is the fact that we get to work with all these incredible people who truly have informing their communities at the heart of what they do. And it continues to remain such an important key part of showing up every day and doing the work that is that is hard, frankly. Tara, tell us a little bit about the membership. So you've got radio and television in your name. We're familiar with TV stations, but you've got other, so many more outlets these days. And so if it's digital, does that mean that like a Huffington Post their news director would be a member as well, or is this strictly radio and television? Yeah, so RTDNA has had a bit of an evolution in terms of our membership. Uh, we started as an organization for specifically news directors of television and radio. And then as the evolution of journalism occurred, so did we, and we started embracing those digital journalists. So frankly, 
what that means is yes, it's a it's a Huffington Post. Uh, it's your Axios, right? It is uh, digital peer play organizations whose news product essentially only shows up on the internet or a digital media surface. It is also print newspapers who are pushing out their content digitally. So for us, truly, what we've found is as we've kind of looked at the strategic goals of the organization, explored what we can do that's unique. There are 70 plus other journalism associations in the United (gasps) States. So there is almost a journalism association specific to whatever niche you are looking for. So for us, it was really, how do we show up in a unique way that really benefits not only broadcast and television journalists, but also digital journalists, which frankly then widens the gates for every journalist. And what do we do to stand out that makes us a little bit different and make sure that we're not duplicating efforts? Well, we're going to talk about those things that are making you different. But before we do that, let's talk about your journey. How did you get to become executive director of RTDNA? I think like everyone else, I did not seek out a career in associations. I actually don't know anyone who did, um, which is what I think makes this journey question always so interesting when you ask others. I My background is in journalism. I sat on the board of directors for the Society of Professional Journalists uh, as a non-traditional student in my late 20s and spent two years on the board, really loved the organization. At the time, my husband was deployed uh, overseas. I had two young kids and the executive director approached me and asked if I wanted to work part-time cleaning up their database of deceased members. And (laughs) to me at the time, um, it felt like I could still say very adjacent to journalism, but I also didn't have newsroom hours, which would have been a struggle with a deployed husband and two toddlers at the time. So I thought it was a temporary stop for me. It was not. I moved from uh, cleaning up the database to managing the chapters of that organization, which were, you know, definitely over 100 between professional and student chapters, to managing membership, to working in events, to becoming the associate executive director there, and then the interim executive director for a little while before coming over to one of SPJ's partner organizations, RTDNA, in 2018. So I have been in journalism associations for well over a decade in only journalism associations. So I am an association professional who's very specific to journalism. Wow. And and so Tara, early in your career, you were a journalist. I never actually worked in journalism. So my degrees in journalism, I worked in student media while I was in college. I freelanced a little bit, but I almost went immediately into associations because I thought it was just going to be a little blip and then I was going to go into newsrooms. Um, And here I am still many years later. Loving every minute of it. Loving every minute. That's good to hear. Tara, how long have you been executive director? So I came into RTDNA as Director of Strategic Initiatives and then moved into the Chief Staff Officer role in, I think, 2020-ish. That whole time frame is a blur, I think, for everybody. And then we uh, restructured the organization a little bit, and I became Executive Director in 2021. So this is your first position as the Chief, you know, Exec at the organization, and you took over during a pandemic. Yes. The tail end, which who defines where the tail end of this pandemic is? Yes. Well, that's a good question. I don't know how, <laughs> how, how I would define the tail end. What's that like 
to take the helm of an organization that's so diverse during a pandemic? Oh, and it's your uh, first executive director <laughs> position. I I think for me, right, it when you come into it in a moment that I think for our industry, uh, frankly, I think everybody says that, right, which is th- that the pandemic was tough for their industry. It was tough for our industry, what it required of our members from a journalism perspective, specifically broadcast, was to figure out how to produce local news shows in a completely and totally different way. So we had a ton of disruption, which led to some innovative changes in our industry that we were serving. Weirdly enough, our staff made the decision to go fully remote on like March 1st of 2020. So it was before anybody told everybody they had to go home. In a really, really great circumstance, we were prepared to be remote. We had gone remote about five days before the rest of the world did. I don't know if we started that trend, but um, I would have liked for it to be under different circumstances, right? So I think it was not only the disruption of the industry that we were serving, but also the mild for us disruption of our staff moving to a fully remote team, but then also making sure we're a very small staff, right? So we have six people, but then also making sure that we are supporting all of our staff members through what was a super difficult time for each of them in their own way. It was a lot of disruption. I tend to always see disruption as an opportunity for change and innovation. And so that's what the association started doing. We really, we tackled some really big things, right? We tackled culture. We tackled our conference, which had been with partner organizations for two decades. And so coming out of the pandemic, it was how do we make this look like our own? We tackled how do we better support our staff? We tackled how do we function effectively in a remote environment? And so... I think like a lot of great executives, you look at the opportunity you have to make change in a positive way, and you just have to start doing it. Well, let's turn to RTDNA and talk about all those different culture shifts. So you've been at the helm for, I guess, a couple of years now, and you say that you had a major culture shift that really started a few years ago. So tell us about that and how has that powered your success? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things from broadcast specifically journalism perspective is that the industry we serve has never been totally on the forefront of diversity when you look at its evolution over time, right? RTDNA started in the 40s. Um, It was primarily a male-driven leadership structure, uh, not only within the organization itself, but within the newsrooms that we were serving. And so you started to see different perspectives, different voices move into the leadership roles in the industry. But I also think pieces and parts of that culture were held over. So what we realized right around pandemic, coming out of the pandemic, was that we had some work to do in making sure that there was a collaborative culture between the board and staff. Because there wasn't before? I I would say, and not in a bad way, right? It was just the way that the organization had functioned previously, right? Which is that the board made a lot of decisions and then ultimately it was directing the staff to do stuff, which in some instances is super appropriate, right? I think in a lot of instances, when you talk about innovation and being able to meet the strategic goals of an organization, It is a collaborative effort, an eloquent dance of ideas from both board and staff, and then getting in the trenches and figuring out what will work. And so that just wasn't happening quite as much as it needed to for us to be able to thrive and move forward from an innovative lens. Okay, so hang on. Let let me unpack this. (laughs) 
a culture shift that involves the board mm-hmm. doesn't just happen. Somebody raised their hand and said, this has to change. And you need board leadership to go along with you. Yes. So how do you do that? Or who was it on the board who said, okay, Tara, let's be partners in this? <laughs> I think it was an evolution. And it's really weird when you look back on some of those things, right? And you're looking for a flashpoint and there just isn't one, right? It is a, uh. it is a gradual change. I think for us, we had several leaders in a row who really understood that they were experts in journalism and we were experts in association management. And each one of us needed the other for the organization to be able to achieve the things it wanted to. And so I think there was a mutual respect that was built in the fact that we each have really important things to bring to the table. And so it started with smaller conversations. It started with creating different meeting structures that allowed for back and forth brainstorming. It started with, and at the time they were all Zoom, right? Of course. It started adjusting how some of our committees operate. It started in all of those small intangible things that that really drive the fact that over time, there became this mutual understanding that we both needed each other for us to be able to move forward. What kind of changes did you make to your committees? So this is part of an overall governance evolution that we've been on a journey for a couple of years now. Our committees used to be primarily staffed by the board, right? It was uh, board leadership fitting into small groups around committees for things that they were interested or experts around. We recognize that A, that doesn't create a lot of diversity for opinion, and B, that we need the board to be functioning at a strategic level, not necessarily a workhorse level, right? And so one of the first things we did as part of this governance evolution, which led to a lot of other things, right? Looking at our board structure, looking at all of our governance operations. One of the first things we did was essentially say, like, we can we can fill these committees with members who are interested in being engaged, who have specific areas of expertise, who want to lead, but maybe not at a board level just yet. And then beyond that, what a wonderful pipeline for moving people into board service. Wow. Uh, because we just didn't have that mechanism either the funnel mechanism, but also just the how do you get engaged with the organization mechanism if you weren't attending our signature events, for example, um, or writing for our newsletter. There was just no opportunity for people to raise their hand and say, I care about what we're doing here and I'd like to get involved in a more meaningful way. So Tara, by reimagining the committees, which used to be dominated by the board or fully staffed by the board, you basically created a whole new way to nurture new leaders and create engagement. Yes, absolutely. And it is it is working, right? We're in the kind of second year phase of this, which is having our membership start to move into leadership roles within those committees. Um, and so they'll be structured with their own individual leadership ladder. And so there is kind of a natural progression to A, learning more about the organization, to B, understanding how leadership works within our TDNA, and then C, being able to see more of the alignment between what the committees are doing and the strategic goals of the organization. Boy, and not to mention, you're probably less likely to burn out the board members who previously were doing everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that was, and and it is also difficult for people to switch hats, right? You wear a hat where you are trying to produce an article or create a webinar or whatever that may look like. And then maybe the very next day, we're asking you to put on a different hat as a board member and say, 
what are the big challenges facing journalism five, 10 years down the road, put on your future goggles and let's have those strategic conversations. And so ideally it allows our board to really sit in that strategic seat and it allows committees to do the work that funnels up to those strategic goals. Tara, you say that this governance redo, if you will, was also accompanied by a big staff culture shift. So tell us about that. I think for us, again, small staff, right? It really came down to, and this is this is kind of my wheelhouse, right? Culture within staff, within teams, within organizations is critically important to me. And so it came down to how do we want to show up as a staff? How do we want to support one another as a staff? And how do we want to truly make sure that people are being treated as though they are humans first and uh, employees of our tDNA second? And so for us, it meant a taking the full staff remote in March of 2020 to create more opportunities for people to frankly, not commute to D.C., right? We we were headquartered in D.C. We had an office in D.C. We know that D.C. was expensive to live in. We know the commute wasn't loved by all, right? So creating an environment Ugh. where not only uh, do people have some more time to balance out their day at home, but also give us the opportunity to have voices from everywhere. Uh, it's it's a challenge, right? When you, you're saying the only smart people that we are able to hire are those that live in and around the DMV area, when we know ah, that there are smart, talented people interesting perspective. everywhere. Yeah. So uh, that that was one piece of it. This past year, we moved to unlimited PTO, which has made a tremendous difference for our staff. I think. So why'd you do that? Oh, why did we do that? So one of the things I, I have to say about it before I say anything else is that we have unlimited PTO with a minimum requirement of three weeks. What we see happen with unlimited is that people just don't take it, right? You take it when you're afraid you're going to lose it, right? Lose it uh, in terms of what your vacation is left. So we implemented that minimum requirement because we thought it was important. So that aside, I think we did it because we wanted people to recognize when they needed to take a break and not feel constructive guardrails around the fact that they only had four more days left in the year. When you need a break, you need a break. And it may mean a day. It may mean a week. For us, we have staff members who really enjoy traveling abroad, myself being one of them. And so how do we create a mechanism that allows you to show up and do really good work, but also do the things you want to do? And so it's worked really well. Everybody has a bit of a different mechanism that works for them when they when they take time off, whether it's two days or 31 days, which we have had a couple of times this year. It also supports our staff who is starting new families, right? And I think being able to do that makes people understand that we see them as a human first, and we're really, really doing everything we can to support them. Tara, you've got this interesting exercise where you ask your staff about a meal or a gift. Oh. I love this. Tell us about this. So one of the things I do is outside of RTDNA, I do some training work for other organizations, both nonprofit and for-profit. Um, and it's around things like generational differences, working better as a team, conflict resolution. And one of the things I almost always ask that group is if you had to go to a restaurant and you had to order a meal for everyone in your 
immediate team, right? Maybe it's your department. For us, it's our whole staff. Could you order something that you know they would eat? Or could you order a favorite drink for them? Or could you go to a gift shop and pick something out that would work for their dog or their children, right? And when I ask that question, I am... I guess not surprised anymore, but saddened is probably more of an appropriate answer in the fact that not very many hands go up. And so we're not doing enough collectively from a workplace perspective across the board of building those key relationships. The engine of success, there's a ton of research around it. I'm fascinated by things like that. But the engine of success tells us that really great things happen when you build a foundation on relationships. And relationships mean seeing others, understanding how they see the world, appreciating their lenses, getting to know who they are. You know, our staff is is really close. We could probably sit down and order at least a, a meal that someone would eat or a drink, right? We know if somebody likes wine or beer or they really like fruit juice in the morning. We know their dogs. We know their kids. We put a lot of stock in building relationships with one another And I think it makes us better for it because the work is important. But I think for us, seeing other people within our team succeeding almost trumps that. That's, I think, how we've shifted the culture to be more productive. So, Tara, I've had HR people who, when I ask staff about their spouses, say, oh, my God, Joanna, you can't talk about those things. And I say, wait, what do you mean? Like, I've already hired them. You know, I want to get to know them. And then eventually they kind of relax. You know, I am totally with you that really getting to know your staff on a deep level really builds that trust. But in organizations where that doesn't exist, how do you recommend to them that they do that? How do you do it if it doesn't come naturally? I think it's harder with remote organizations, right? I think this kind of goes back to that. You have to create an intentionality around building those relationships, even more so when you're fully remote. I think it starts simple. This is probably akin to the question you asked me with the board evolution, right? And how that change happened. I don't think there's a flashpoint. There is no magic switch that like makes your relationships better. I think it starts with small efforts. If you have Slack or a group communication channel, like, hey, share something exciting that happened personally this week or uh, when's the last time everybody went on a bike ride, right? Oh. Um, or what is your favorite travel destination? There are lots of questions that don't dive so deep that they raise HR flags, yeah. but that will often lead to people sharing more information. And so I think it's a it's a gradual approach. And I think if you can create a list of those feeder questions, this is my tangible takeaway, I guess, and post one once a week and just encourage people to talk about something other than deadlines, due dates, the task at hand, that will start to develop. Amazing suggestion. Tara, let's talk about the third, I guess, leg in your in your stool of reinvention. You completely reimagined your conference. So tell us about that. Yes. RTDNA had been with partner organizations for two decades before. So we, while I think those conferences were great, right, you're never able to fully focus them on your members, your member needs, your organization's strategic goals. And so one of the things we did coming out of the pandemic when those agreements were over was say, like, what do we 
What do we want to do? How do we want to show up in our conference? And how are we different than those 70 plus other journalism organizations? What can we offer? And for us, it really came down to A, we wanted a core community service, leaving the community better than we found it opportunity. And B, leadership was a key piece for us. And so some of those components meant eliminating panel discussions, right? We wanted people to not be talked at. And so all of our sessions are 90 minutes. The people are set in crescent rounds instead of theater. Oh. The trainers are encouraged to talk for a little bit and then train for a little bit, talk for a little bit, and then train for a little bit. We don't do a call for programs anymore. We work with our programming committee and say, what are the biggest challenges you're facing? And then we really try to seek out experts outside of journalism who can come in and lend their area of expertise. So one example that we haven't been able to nail down this speaker yet, if you have any Chick-fil-A listeners, that would be the appropriate time to make that connection. But if you want to talk about scaling a process, right, if you are a corporate owner of multiple television stations and you want to talk about scaling something, your executives at Chick-fil-A are the people I want to hear from. Who scales better than Chick-fil-A? and who scales more efficiently and more pleasantly. Oh. So I think for us, it was how do we get outside of kind of this echo chamber of people we already hear from? And how do we bring in new and diverse voices from other industries where we can take their their success stories and then put a journalism lens over it? So that was one part of it. And then we realized mental health was really important to what we wanted to do holistically at the conference. So we built in self-care time. We've had puppies. We've had baby goats. We've had mini remote control cars when we were in Indianapolis. We built an extra white space. We purposefully shrunk the conference attendance to 250 people because we didn't want a conference where you saw someone in the hallway and then you weren't sure if you were ever going to connect with them again mm -hmm. for the next two days. And so it was a very intentional process. And then the other piece for us that was really critical was the community service. So we pick a community service partner. We do a community service project for them. So that looks different every year, depending on who our partner is. And then we started evaluating, what are we spending money on? What are we buying as part of this conference? And is there a better way? So we stopped renting furniture from our expo services and we buy it from Amazon. And then we donate it to our community service partner. If we need a printer at that conference, we'll buy the printer from Amazon. And if the community service partner needs it in their office, we will donate it to them. So how are we able to look at all the things we're doing to achieve our conference goals, but then utilize some of those, those ways to give back to the community that we're in? So Tara, let me ask you a question. At some, again, I'm going to ask you about the flashpoint. You made an <laughs> intentional decision to revamp the conference, reinvent it. Why? Like, did somebody say the conference isn't working? Or did you say, heck, we're changing everything. Might as well change that. Like, where did that come from? I think it was a lens of opportunity, which is that for two, for 20 years, our members and our leadership, too, really never felt like we owned our own conference, oh. right? What were we providing our members specifically? I think there was a lot of value in it, but I, I don't think there was ever the feeling of this is ours alone. So I think that created an opportunity. And then I think as part of that, we had to look really carefully at not only who do we want to be and how do we want to show up from a conference perspective, but what makes us different? 
with that many journalism association conferences, there are maybe 10 big ones throughout the year. How do we offer something that's not being offered elsewhere? Because there would be no point if we were all offering the right, same thing, right. right? Forget the business perspective. If we're trying to make journalism better, it doesn't help anybody if we're all doing the same thing. So I think those were the two key things that we really wanted to look at as we started to say, how do we start over and think outside the box and build this better? So the legacy piece is of great interest to me. So you're saying that no matter where you're meeting, you pick a local organization and then you say, how can we help you? What do you need? And you might give them service. You might give them stuff. How do you pick the organization? And is this something that you, that you tell the members you're doing? Yes. So we highlight our community service partner in all of our messaging. It looks different everywhere we go. In terms of picking, I will say there is no specific rhyme or reason, right? Sometimes we have local members in that area who are already connected to a charitable organization. Sometimes we've tried to work with some and it it just wasn't going to work. They didn't have a specific need or their service project that they needed would require us to go off site, mm. uh, which isn't something that we do. And so it's, it's, it looks a little bit different in every city, but for us, then what that means is that the offerings look different in every city. So in Indianapolis, we worked with HVAF, which is a local organization that supports homeless veterans. So for our members, what that looked like was they were all asked to bring, uh, new socks that were donated directly to the organization. So that was something they brought with them. And then while they were there, we packed hygiene kits that were given to the homeless veterans. Um, And then we were able to give back stuff, as you say, right? Sometimes it's furniture. We did that when we were in Denver with a local organization that supported homeless women in domestic violence situations or transgender folks. So it really looks different depending on the organization. But it does require us every time to say, what do they need? How can we make that happen? And then are there things we're already doing as part of our conference that we can repurpose, reuse, gift, whatever that looks like in a sustainable way? Tara, I love this because I think with the reinvention of the actual education plus the community service projects, you're essentially creating a one-of-a-kind event every single time. Absolutely brilliant. Yes. Thanks. Tara, before we go, I want to ask you, what's it like to be one of your members these days? It's a tumultuous time. We've got two wars going, actually probably more than that if I think about it. Many, many wars, but two really at the, you know, at the top of our at the top of our, yeah. you know, psyches. What's it like to be a member these days? It's really hard, right? I think I think there's multiple facets of it being difficult. One is that the journalism industry is not immune to the recruitment and retention challenges that a ton of other industries are seeing right now. And so they are also tasked with doing more with less. And then when you start to add a lot of the things that are happening in the world right now, there is a mental health toll in covering some of these things. And that's been a key part of our conference, of our training, of our education, because at the end of the day, journalists show up and cover some of the most traumatic and difficult stories of our times. And they do it because we need to know, the public needs to know, but it is not a no cost situation. I think it's difficult for a number of reasons. I think it continues to be difficult to deal with the mental toll that comes with some of the work that they're doing, specifically in some of these times. Tara, amazing interview. I want to thank you for being on the show this morning. 
Thanks for sharing everything that you're doing. And thanks for sharing this journey of reinvention that you've been on. I hope that you'll come back in the future and tell us because I have no doubt that in a year, RTDNA is going to look really different. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye. Bye.